Sports. In terms of the weekly update schedule, we are not on the air next week with a weekly update. I will be on the air, but not doing the weekly update. I will be uh, will already be in Venice with the Jewish Unity Initiative, the big Venice trip, as you know, with the broadcast on the 21st and 22nd. So we'll already be there next Shabbat with the Jewish Unity Initiative in Venice. The following week, which is the Friday of Thanksgiving weekend, we will reconvene for the weekly update. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us each week on Friday with the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you. I appreciate that. Before we get to the election and a lot of things that people um, are, are curious about, we should take a minute uh, regarding the life of Yaffa Eliach. Uh, you are one who is always demanding, rightfully so, that the Jewish world remember the past while at the same time always looking to the present and future. Uh, Yaffa Eliach was uh, Dr. Eliach. Uh, was an important figure in all of that. I thought that we'd ask you for a word about her life as we start out this Friday morning. Uh, absolutely. I think for, for many people, especially young people, don't know her. Uh, I would hope that they would go and look at some of her work and uh, her role at the Holocaust Museum with the portraits, uh, personalizing the Shoah, bringing home the message uh, from the abstract of six million to the individuals who, who were involved. And her voice was a, an extremely credible one, uh, and she was an articulate uh, spokesperson uh, on the on the Shoah, but bringing it in, in, in a contemporary sense for young people, both at Yeshiva Flatbush and speaking all over the world. Israel, I had the occasion to be with her many times on different fora, and uh, and it's, uh, it's a great loss uh, to her family, but to everyone. Yeah, no question about it. Somebody who was a worldwide figure, and as you just said, really took the task and uh, and uh, did what she wanted to do very, very well. Um, the, okay, so the, we, we know the story of the week, obviously. We're going to have a new president of the United States of America as of January the 20th, and that'll be Donald Trump. Um, everybody, I would think everybody who was believing the media reports, most people, I shouldn't say everybody, because I, I, I live with some people who were not surprised by the results, <laughs> but, but most people, I think, were a bit surprised by the way things went. Uh, what was your reaction? Well, we'll ask you, as everyone's curious, as you can imagine, our app is going crazy with questions about the transition and what you think about certain elements, but what do you think about the result itself? How shocked were you by what happened on Tuesday night? Well, I think for for uh, people who are political junkies like us, and for uh, those who try to understand the dynamic of American society, this is going to be studied for a long time. There are so many factors here, and I've spoken to many of the major pollsters, the analysts, uh, from literally the afternoon of the election until uh, last night. And I keep getting new insights and new information about what, uh, why they got it all wrong and what the dynamic inside American electric, uh, electorate seems to be, that this was not about the candidates, it was about the voters and the, the, the number of voters that turned out, the number of voters who did not fill in a top line, right. that more than half of, of the supporters of both candidates, major candidates, had negative views of them. And the the uh, the totality of the statistics that in, in Michigan, I think it, uh, someone told me that a uh, hundred thousand people didn't fill in the top line uh, in the last election. Three hundred thousand people didn't this time. If you remember, the margin yep. was a fraction of that. Mm-hmm. 
So people were, were not turned on, I think, to the bitterness of the campaign, the fact that, that you could have almost $2 billion spent by the Democrats and a far lesser amount by the Republicans, uh, that the media's distortions and some things that appear to be uh, lies, whether they were fed to them or concocted, like the surge and the other things that were reported that seem not to have been true. Yeah. But as, as uh, Frank Luntz told me, he said he, he never remembers that the, 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 how the exit polls keep giving such bad information. As you know, we always joke that in Israeli elections, the exit polling and the polling done before an election always proves to be wrong because they tell the truth to the pollsters and lie at the polls. Right. Well, the American people seem to have learned from them. It's interesting because I I always thought even with the sentiment that you know that so many people are saying I'm gonna, I'm going to hold my nose as I vote I'm going to vote for the you know for the lesser of two evils all the different expressions that people had in describing the way they were going to go to the polls I always thought that in the end even with that they'd vote for a major candidate then as Tuesday was going on and people are contacting me about write-in votes that they were casting and people I know really well on third-party votes. That they were casting, and really red people, really red people who were considering you no, know, not voting for the Republican. All of a sudden, I said, "My gosh, this is this is very different," as you just described. And but he touched he touched an agra, and I think that this for us, for the Jewish community, is something you know we should be concerned about. The, the Jews, it seems, by all those studies that I've seen, voted seventy percent for uh, right. Clinton, which is in keeping general keeping with past uh, uh, elections, mm-hmm. but. And I think more and more it was concern about some of the things that were said in the in the attitudes. But the the real story here is the anger of common people, of regular people, and not in one simple demographic. And I think the, the it's not going to dissipate this anger. And you see it in some of the demonstrations now, which I think are just politically motivated, and people. And on the other hand, an expression of frustration on the part of people. But the anger that that exists, the the uh, alienation from government and officials is something that that should be concerned when you have this kind of of uh, unrest in society it's not a good thing and i hope that there can be a some sense of unity be some real actions taken and i hope early on to address the employment questions economic issues the challenges that people are facing so it brings the country back together oh, no question it's a long road ahead and as you said anger on both sides and it's just uh, people are wary about what's going to be happening over the next few weeks. By the way, you sort of touched on this, and I was going to ask this later on, but I'll, I'll ask you now. You know, there are people who are somewhat concerned uh, that those who are harboring anti-Semitic feelings in this country are now feeling a bit more comfortable. Is there anything to that? Would you say there's anything post-election, post-Trump victory to worry about in that regard? I, I think the dynamic is one to worry about. I think that, and and their, whether they feel a license now to give more public expression is something we will have to measure. The, some of them, obviously, in the campaign, uh, did and and were vocal about it. But I think the longer term implication, and uh, you know, David Duke got less than three percent of the vote in Louisiana. There was a concerted effort. Um, um, to to keep his to to, it, to to make sure he did not do well, not because they thought he would win, but because they want to repudiate this kind of this point of view, and 
the, the there were a lot there was a lot of money sunk into to campaigns to defeat for instance uh NIAC, the which is many people describe as uh, some sort of front for the Iranians and it has very prominent people and it targeted those who voted against the JCPOA against the Iran deal mm. well they failed and you know everybody virtually everybody I think there were 25 or more in the house alone and all but one got elected reelected and that one was not because of the Iran issue. The Senate as well, and you know, many great friends of the of Israel and of the great senators were up for re-election. And unfortunately, Kirk lost in right. Illinois, but we knew that from the right. virtually from the start. And Kelly Ayat came within seven hundred votes out of seven hundred thousand, which, as you always remind people, why it's important to vote. That mm-hmm. a few more people having switched their votes, you know, three hundred and fifty-one people voting the other way, Kelly Ayat would have been elected right um so the the messages here there are are many that uh, people you know were citing the power of j street and when m- m- the vast majority of people they backed almost all were defeated right so th- there are a lot of uh, dynamics here there are, there's a lot of things that we will have to interpret in the future america's one and only jewish moments in the morning radio program heard and listeners sponsored wfmu east orange wmfu mount hope Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jamnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Reminder, schedule-wise, there's no weekly update next week. We'll be in the midst of our Jewish Unity Initiative mission to Venice, Italy. Uh, it'll return the weekly update two weeks from today on the Friday of Thanksgiving weekend. And again, a reminder that we are uh, making, uh, we are we are getting closer and closer to our big transition if you have not yet installed the Nahum Siegel Network app or arranged for your computer uh, to access our NahumSiegel.com website, or if you've not yet gotten your web radio and tuned it in, if you have not yet written down the listen line at 605-562-4400, 605-562-4400, make sure to do so. All right, Malcolm, you know what most people want to hear uh, us discuss this morning. That's all of this, of course, vis-a-vis Israel. Uh, the initial reaction of Prime Minister Netanyahu to Trump's victory. Very positive. Uh, they had a very good conversation. He also spoke to Hillary Clinton, and I think that you will see continuity in terms of pro-Israel positions. And they, we will see who will get the get be put into key posts. But the Vice President Pence has a very very strong pro-Israel record. And the talk of of a Gingrich or John Bolton and others who are are known supporters. Uh, I, I think that. Uh, likelihood is that you'll have uh, people who are very favorable. I think also though, that you get the, the, in essence, the continuity. How this will play out in the next weeks, what President Obama decides to do, given all the rumors of possible U.N. actions or other things, whether the French will now see that their initiative is that we're going to get U.S. support. It didn't till now, and I'd say Secretary Kerry did oppose it. Uh, I think in the general Middle East, President Sisi was the first foreign leader to reach out and they are talking in much more optimistic terms, and it's interesting that clearly all sides want to see the United States uh, get back in and, and take a more active role, a more visible role. The, the Palestinians complained uh, were not happy with the outcome and uh, expressed it. But, you know, we'll have to see. I think those who are who are looking for the real estate for the new embassy should take it a little slow. Actually, I think they have their own land in, in Jerusalem for an embassy. Whether, in fact, the embassy gets moved is uh, 
I think, less certain. The intent may be there, but it, reality uh, often uh, supersedes intent. You know, you know the perfect day for it to happen, right? Yes, on the, on the Jerusalem 50. Correct. That would be amazing. On the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem. And we have many opportunities this year, the 100th anniversary of Balfour, the 70th anniversary of the partition. We have uh, got a lot of uh, good occasions coming up where we should be reminded of the history generally. But I think, uh, you know, Congress is going to be very strong. The people will remain, uh, many of the chair people at Royce and with his Democratic counterpart, Elliot Engel, who have been really a model team in bipartisan cooperation in the House as well, the Senate as well. Um, so we'll see what they will do in regard to the Iran legislation, uh, certainly in withholding Iran uh, more accountable. And we saw the, the, the Iranian reaction was not uh, favorable. Who else besides Iran and the PA? Was there anybody else on the other side of the ledger in terms of not being in favor of the result? Or not happy with the result? Well, there was a lot of European uh, skepticism and, and negative comments and reflected in their stock exchanges. The, initially, the reaction in Asia uh, because of uh, you know the protectionist policy. But no Middle Eastern thing. country outside of Iran would express uh, publicly their dissatisfaction with the result? And the PA, of course. No. no that, that I know of, I don't, I don't recall anybody else uh, coming out with a... So, a negative reaction. so that's interesting. The Iranians had a lot to say on it. Yeah, as the specter of Iran, you know, hangs over the Middle East, and there's so many countries, as you've described for us, so detailed in the last couple of years, who fear Iran. Um, the, 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 I mean, they must be thrilled with the result and are, are very hopeful that actually something can be, uh, you know, can be changed in the Middle East in their favor. They're hopeful for a reset, and and it's one of the things that we've talked about, and that I saw whenever I visit Arab countries and meet with Arab uh, leaders here, that the the sense of American disengagement, the, that the, some of the emphasis of American policy, uh, that that will there will be a reset of of sorts, and that there will be uh, a different attitude, a more emphasis on holding Iran accountable. We we saw again this week so many things that that Iran is doing. They they are admitting now, just in the last few hours, that they provided the missile technology to Hezbollah, just as they said they were militarily involved in Gaza, and uh, provided the missiles to the Houthis. They, they they are telling it. We know that there was another violation now of the uh, JCPOA in regard to the the exceeding the heavy water allotment. This is the second time they did it in February, and they did it now. And the United States' reaction in the first one was to, to not only not to punish them, but we, we bought the excess. So they, we, we claimed that we needed it, but uh, it's incentivizing Iran to keep uh, overproducing, as they did, because they're getting money for it. And it, and it mainstreams Iran as a nuclear supplier, uh, even though they remain a global proliferation pariah in violating the missile and arms embargoes and many other things. So the this story, which did not get much coverage because of the you know election. emphasis on the election post election results, um, is of concern because the the spokesman for the State Department said I won't use the V word. You okay. know what the V word is? What? Violation. Mm. He would not say that this was a violation mm. because it's a violation. Then it, it introduces sanctions, and because they don't want to sanction Iran, so they the the. You know, they don't want to use the term that might trigger the need for them uh, to take a, 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 a stronger uh, uh, stand. And they talked about 
um, uh, many other aspects in terms of uh, the Houthi missiles, the Zalzal II that they provide, about uh, the, the deals they signed with Total, a $4.8 billion deal for the development of the PARS uh, fields, the, um, uh, the, the, the deployment of IRGC to, to Aleppo and elsewhere, and the recruitment of, of new forces, and trying to uh, position themselves in regard to Mosul, where they're being challenged, by the way, by Turkey, that also wants to position itself, each one supporting and training uh, their counterpart the militias, uh, Sunni and Shiite militias. Hmm. Uh, th- there's so much involved, and, and the hope is that Iran will at least be held to account for the deal. I don't think they're going to be able to scrap the JCPOA so quickly. That, well, that isn't going to happen. But th- why is there an impression, then, among media pundits, that at least a significant part of the quote-unquote Iran deal can be eliminated by executive order. It can be. It's not binding. And you remember we talked about this at the time of the vote, that, that because they pulled the maneuver of the 60 votes, rather than signing a, a treaty or a deal that, that would be binding on future administrations, you know, it's the keystone of democracies that... What I mean, one administration does. I mean, it's the only foreign policy honored by the other. It's the only foreign policy issue that he ran on. Doesn't he have no choice but to do something about it in the first month? So that's what I said. That I think that it's it's not a question of scrapping the deal because then Iran will not be restricted in the production of uranium. Right. Even though we believe that they may well be cheating on it, but um, uh, and I hope that more we done to help strengthen the people in Iran who want democracy, who want to get rid of this regime. Uh, and that the the um, there's a lot they can do without totally scrapping the deal, but holding just hold them to account on it. Don't allow them to do all these provocative actions, I underst- aggression, etc. I understand that, but you know the electorate that cares about foreign policy needs him to display some type of action. That's I agree. Some- I'm saying there will be action. I understand, I, but the it's action, just a question but of the definition and the terms that I see people but the using. Act- but the I action- don't want to raise expectations for things. I understand that, that may that, not but happen. The- but, but the, the action that the other things do happen. But the action that you're describing is not a headlines grabbing. Part of the Iran deal has been eliminated. That's what I'm saying. I think that I think that the foreign policy concern in this country, I think, needs that at this point. If it, if he's going to make sure to uh, you know strengthen the uh, the violations and the uh, supervision of the Iranians, that's great. But I don't think that's going to do it. No, that's not. No, no. I'm saying much more than that. I'm saying that I want to see Iran held to account. I'm, I'm, th- those are only the, the preliminary efforts in regard within the confines of the deal. We're talking about far beyond it. We should not be restricted to the JCPOA. I want to see really tough sanctions. You know, the sanctions legislation is coming up again. We should be seeing a whole slew of new restrictions placed on them and that the international community understand businesses, understand that they'll be held to account or money, for dealing with a money laundering country, country supporting terrorism which, as you know, Secretary Kerry played down, and then, and, but the Treasury Department has been very strong on. There's many things that we can do vis-a-vis Iran today. doesn't mean that we have to challenge the international community or, or, or put the, the administration and eventually replace the JCPOA with something that is more demanding and more uh, really holds Iran to account. That's what we have to do, and do it in really tough measures on their human rights record. There's so many aspects where Iran is culpable and where they have not been exposed and the, the, their role throughout the region and around the world. Now it's time to hold them to account and that those who, in the administration who have lobbied against these efforts will uh, hopefully see that, that 
we can do it, we can do it effectively, and we can bring the rest of the world with us, whether they like it or not. The United States Congress is now going to be Republican on both sides, on the Senate right. side and the House side. We know, as you've described to us a million times, that there is generally a pro-Israel sentiment in the United States Congress. We now know that there's going to be a new administration. We're sort of familiar with the makeup of the administration and what its policies are starting on January the 20th. Isn't this a unique opportunity when it comes to issues like aid for Israel, when it comes to issues like a, a commitment uh, about, the, uh, about the embassy moving to Jerusalem, when it, it, a situation arises in terms of sanctions with Iran, when, 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 a, uh, when strength is needed now in dealing with Arab nations who are neighbors of Israel, isn't this a unique opportunity for the administration to work together with Congress to move things, move all those things in a positive direction. Absolutely, and it, my hope is that it's exactly what we'll see that they, they will be. They should move quickly on both the domestic and international fronts to get to have credibility because you have two years till you have a House election. Right. Nobody, they have no excuses now because they control all three bodies, and I think the efforts to reach out to the leadership that the uh, the president elected was important, uh, and I hope he will do it uh, a bipartisan basis. Be able to bring along the support of Democrats and and create a record and show what can be done when when you have the leadership and you 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 bring along both sides. It's not never easy. It's not. There's no uh, unanimity. Is never going to happen. But the issues you cite. And, and we should focus on what is really important. I think uh, looking at some aspects of the uh, memo of understanding that was reached will be will be looked at, um, and the the nature of the strategic relationship. And uh, people are talking about uh, you know a relationship the BB uh, the Israel Egypt maybe Russia U.S. working together to to reset some of the things in the Middle East. We have a tinderbox. We have there isn't a single country in the Middle East other than Israel that is not on the brink. That isn't a volatile, and uh, America has not played a, a leadership role. And we've seen many of the countries moving into Putin's orbit or developing ties and moving outside of uh, the U.S. sphere of influence because, uh, uh, although they want to be with the U.S., because they felt that they were ignored or or this was not a priority and 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 were not attended to. So I think Sisi being the first to speak to the president and other Arab states reaching out is because they are really anxious to see this kind of reset, and that might help move forward a process in the Middle East where the Palestinians see that that stalling and uh, you know constant uh, the, the lying and the, and the incitement is going to end, and that there is there is a, a new era coming. Um, the official, I mean, you alluded to it just now, official Russian reaction, official uh, Putin reaction to the uh, election of Trump, I assume, was positive? It was positive, and Medvedev, the president was in, in uh, uh, the prime minister was in uh, Israel uh, this week. Uh, I, I don't I mean, think we should be uh, looking for an extended honeymoon, but I do think that there can be, and because of the relationship during the uh, election process, um, I think everybody would want to see Russia and the U.S. to the degree possible cooperate, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in other areas, and to, to offset the extremists who are gaining in, in, in these areas, that uh, that are, uh, uh, some sort of a more cooperative relationship can emerge. Um, the... Um 
I was just going to ask you about certain other people and how they reacted to the to the uh, to the vote. He's surrounded by certain people, meaning the president elect, surrounded by certain people who have a real track record when it comes to the PA and the you know the uh, predecessors of PA leadership. Referring, of course, to Rudy Giuliani, uh, <laughs> that that could be a, a, a big influence on him in the White House. I would think Rudy would have a tremendous say at this point. After all that, uh, or as some people say, you know, he's one of the big winners of the week, so to speak. Also, someone mentioned to me yesterday that Pence, the vice president-elect, could have a tremendous influence. You just described it earlier in this conversation. Uh, I, I don't think we, as a community, realize how pro-Israel he is and what his attitude has been. Obviously, you working closely with him. Uh, and, uh, and others in Washington, you know, are more familiar with it. And um, I, I would wonder what type of uh, person he would, in fact, choose to be Secretary of State. You you just said in, earlier in this conversation on the list of names you provided, you mentioned John Bolton. Is that somebody who you think he'd consider for a position like that? I do. And I do think that Bolton will end up in a key position, uh, assuming he's offered it. I think that uh, the, the speculation about Gingrich, I don't know if he really wants to go into government, but he's certainly a name that has been uh, bandied about, Huckabee. Um, you know, it's a question of who wants to be in and what position they get, but I think you're going to see uh, potentially many favorable people, uh, as you described them. And yeah, I mean, we would certainly describe them, but uh, your reference to Mike Pence is important, and I mentioned it yeah, earlier. Right. Uh, Mike Pence is not a guy. He's not a flashy guy who who tries to um, advertise his pro-Israel position, though he articulates it and makes it very clear, because it's something he deeply believes. He's an evangelical Christian. He's somebody who has a long track record of being very strongly pro-Israel and did a, uh, if you saw the thing on the Internet that he did, where he talked about the position of uh, the president-elect and vice president-elect vis-a-vis Israel. Right. there are other names that are are uh, being suggested for for different posts. We'll have to see. The key things to look for is is chief of staff, right. and they've talked about previous for it. They've talked about other people, mm-hmm. uh, the National Security Council position, um, and you know he has people who are close to him who worked with him in the campaign who will obviously be given uh, those positions as well. So we will see in the, in the next couple of weeks. But they first. The first focus is those who are immediately around the president and the members of the cabinet then. And then you start looking because there are thousands of jobs that that need to be filled and hopefully many people who will be replaced. You know, people talk about the Donald Trump's unilateral behavior, so to speak. I can't imagine that somebody can build what he's built over his career and not rely on people and not delegate appropriately and not run a system in a company where he is, in fact, you know, turning to people for advice. It just I, I know that on the campaign trail didn't always look like that, but I just I don't I don't know if it's possible to get to that point in the business world without you know having that ability. So I hope that he, in fact, will turn to these people when it comes to issues like this. No, I never worked for him, so I don't know, but I know people did who said good things and others who say he is somebody who follows his own lead and and makes his own judgments uh, during the campaign, often seem not to, to, or or people who were advising him uh, recognize that. Yeah, although one could argue that unless, you know, something else was going on that we don't know about, one could argue in the last couple weeks of the campaign he was taking direction. He certainly was doing things differently than... than Mm -hmm. (laughs) Than earlier, um, that's why I wanted to ask you earlier. Uh, Assad in Syria. What do you think his reaction was to uh, the election of Trump? Uh oh. <laughs> so he's not happy. <laughs> so it's funny. Putin's Putin's happy. Assad's not. And the two of them recently have been lining up. You know, 
together on many issues. Yeah, I, I don't know that that Assad knows yet what the implications of this will be, and hopes maybe that the, the Russians and the Americans um, could could agree and and to, to counter the uh, extremists. But the problem is, what happens with the rebels? The United States backs the ones the Russians are bombing, and uh, of course, it's a, it's a total mess. So I wouldn't look for any kind of uh, rational prediction out of that. But the, the overall tone and the message that is sent by an administration is very important. And, you know, every president has their own approach. Every president has their own views and, and uh, priorities. But when we have uh, a time of, of so many serious challenges and, and potential challenges um, on the horizon, uh, the, he, he is not going to have a honeymoon period. He's got to hit the ground running. They have to to address issues very quickly. Uh, we're going to see in November, November 29th, you know, the, the Fatah is supposed to have a conference. We'll see whether there's any real challenge to Abbas's uh, leadership, and they keep making changes. Uh, but this is, you know, he's in the 12th year of his four-year term, and they're, they're going to be bringing uh, people together to, to vote for two of the uh, key bodies, the Central Committee and the uh, bigger uh, revolutionary uh, council, but also Hamas is having an election, and and um, and it's over a couple months, and it's done in a secretive uh, process. Uh, but it could change things. These are are it's a long time since the last election uh, took place, and they are obviously moving to undermine uh, Abbas and Fatah, and talking about the corruption, etc. Uh, and the change that Hamas faces from the last election, which I think was 2013, is that you got Abbas. You have a CC instead of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the Qatar, Turkey, others reduced their their involvement with them, and the uh, the, the tensions between Iran and and the, the Sunni camp led by Saudi Arabia. Uh, these are all going to be take on even greater significance now because of the change that has has taken place. All right, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. We're way behind on time, and there's a question that I know a large segment of this audience wants me to ask you this morning, and I know it has to be asked delicately, and you likely have to answer it delicately, but we know the role of Donald Trump's son-in-law in all of this, and he's already been thrust into the national limelight during the campaign, and obviously much more so since the victory Tuesday night, as we've seen the role that Donald Trump has given him during this very early part of the transition. He is uh, obviously and noticeably a member of the Jewish community, does that in any way uh, um, uh, make you think twice, so to speak, about uh, how heavily our community might seem to be involved in the next administration? Well, I, I don't think, I don't know if he'll go into the administration, but he clearly is somebody that President-elect trusts. I think he's an observant Jew, not just a Jew. Correct. That's why I say a, noticeably. A wonderful family and, a, and, a, and as a, a wonderful young man, I, I've met him uh, numerous times, and he is, uh, I, I think he came out of this in a, in a very positive light, as did his wife, and she's a, a very serious uh, Jewess who, who committed to, to the practice and the traditions. Maybe now we'll have even, for the first time, a kosher portion of the White House kitchen. <laughs> uh, so that could be a positive thing to look forward to, but I think he will remain an influence, whether in or out, and I, I might sense will be maybe he'll stay out and and as a member of the family will certainly have a lot of access okay for a young man he seems to have very mature thinking and 
good good understanding of uh, what is happening. All right, but you haven't you haven't answered the part about uh, Jews in high profile positions. Uh, if that if you're wary of that or not. I'm not. I, I, no, I'm one of those who did not believe that Jews should be excluded because they're Jews. If we want positive people, uh, I'm very happy. If it's a non-Jew, it's very positive. But uh, I think that uh, there's no automatic correlation. There are people who have worked for him who are Jewish who have talked about being in the administration. We'll see. But but a lot of names that we haven't seen or didn't know will always end up because they need to fill in the cabinet. They want to have. Diversity. You want to have, uh, you know, people from who will appeal to different constituencies. So the government is representative, and and is most effective in following the president's lead. And and every president's view, because you're not looking for a conflict, and you have to appoint an attorney general, maybe Giuliani, right. maybe somebody else. Uh, but they and and collectively, I think they will be uh, very important voices. But I think the vice president will play uh, a big role in in. Um, a lot of the affairs, domestic and international. All right. Fascinating week. Thank you, Malcolm. We'll reconvene two weeks from today. I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Two weeks from today is our next weekly update. It'll be Friday of Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, next week, we have our Jewish Unity Initiative mission to Venice, and that's what we'll be concentrating on uh, next Friday morning.